Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, this is John Lee Dumas of EO Fire and welcome to Master Leadership. Great leaders ask great questions and this podcast takes you on a journey to master leadership with questions that matter to leaders who matter with your host, Lily Sinabria. Hello, leaders. This is Lily. And today we have the honor of having Mr. Michael Keeney with us. And his most recent venture has been a full service website, School Leadership 2.0, which already has a membership of more than 12,000 school leaders across the globe. An email bulletin is distributed to over 95,000 educators worldwide, four times weekly. School Leadership 2.0 offers a vibrant virtual forum for school leaders to share and learn together. The homepage can be reached at www.schoolleadership20.com. Now, Mike retired in 2001 after 34 years in public education. During that period, he served as a science teacher, assistant principal, middle school principal, and high school principal in Manhasset, New York. He has been a principal for a total of 21 years. Mike has also served for 12 years on the South Huntington Board of Education, 11 of those as vice president. He has taught at three metropolitan area colleges. He served as president of the Nassau County North Shore High School Principals Association and is an elected member of the National Headmasters Association. Mike was chosen as Nassau County's Administrator of the Year. After retirement, he served as director of the Long Island School Leadership Center, focusing on the development and recruitment of the next generation of school leaders. Most recently, Mike has been appointed to the School Building Leader Advisory Assessment Committee that had responsibility for the creation of the new assessment tool for certifying school administrators in New York. He also served on the staff committee for the Blue Ribbon Commission on Youth Leadership, chaired by former New York Chancellor Carl Hayden. Mike is the Long Island NASSP Certified Breaking Ranks 2 and Breaking Ranks in the Middle Trainer. He is the lead trainer for Western Suffolk BOCES for the new New York State Ed Principal Evaluation Training. Most recently, he is a participant in a select cohort of educators being trained by LCI to be certified MPPR coaches for principals. He is presently mentoring principals in several Long Island school districts. Within the last few years, Mike has served as a facilitator to community-based committees in districts in which schools are being closed either due to budgetary concerns and or declining enrollment. Mike was selected by Nassau BOCES as one of the 14 most influential people in education on Long Island. He has provided consulting help to over 80 Long Island school districts. So welcome, Mike Keeney. We are so happy to have you on our podcast. So as you know, this podcast takes us on a journey to master leadership. And we want to do that today by asking you key questions. Good. So 
good. So are you ready to pour into our listeners? Absolutely. Oh, fantastic. Okay. So our first question is, what inspired you to choose educational leadership as a career path? Uh, back up a little bit. I, I originally went to school to be a chemical researcher. And uh, my friend said to me about midway through the program, he said, you know, we should have something to back this up. So he said, why won't you take an education course? And as soon as I did, I was hooked. And uh, I never turned back. Mm -hmm. So I became a science teacher, uh, first at the middle school level and then in teaching chemistry. And uh, I gradually began uh, in the school in which I worked um, I was surrounded by some wonderful, wonderful people in Manhasset, and they really had high expectations for themselves and for the kids, and I just got caught up in that, and um, they kind of took me under their wing, and uh, they kept telling me that I had some leadership potential, and uh, I guess my ego got the better of me, and, and I decided after a little while of teaching to, to go into administration. Oh, wow. Okay. So um, it's interesting because that is, um, as I continue to meet people, they start on that path. They, they start on, in fact, many of your friends that I've met started on a different path and they, then they went into teaching and then they got hooked yeah. in leadership. Yeah. <laughs> so, okay. So how would you describe your leadership style? I guess as it developed over time, uh, I would say probably collaborative. Mm -hmm. um, I liked working with people, and I, I very quick, quickly realized that if I wanted to go uh, somewhere quickly, I could go by myself. But if I wanted to go far, I needed to go with other people. Uh, so uh, I, I was always that kind of person, um, always asking other people's opinions, trying to get their best thinking. And as a result, I think the decisions that were made were probably better decisions. So I, I would say collaborative. So just the thinking of everybody is, is I guess, more powerful than just one yeah, person's thoughts, absolutely. right? Yeah. Okay. Oftentimes finding out that I was initially wrong. You know, isn't that something, right? To, yeah. to even say I'm wrong. It takes a lot, but, but that's great. Okay. So which quote or quotes about leadership speaks to you and why? Uh, I have two what you might think are strange ones. One comes from a Shakespeare play, uh, which says, he who does not know the truth is merely an idiot, but he who knows it and calls it a lie is a criminal. So I think that it's, it's very important to have a high degree of integrity in what you're doing. Uh, be honest with people, be transparent with people, um, even if the message is sometimes difficult to convey it's probably better to be out front with it. Um, and the second one, which I combine with that, comes from a, um, a blues singer by the name of Sam Lightning Hopkins. And he said, I've been wondering why people don't understand as I do. And I think that's one thing that a leader has to do. Uh, you have to try and get into other people's minds and understand their thinking and try to understand where they are in their thought process by asking a lot of questions and, and really dialoguing with those mm -hmm. people rather than just having a discussion. And why is that important? Because I think if you want to try and develop consensus, um, you not only have to understand 
what the other person's point of view is, but how did they arrive at that point of view? What's motivating them? Um, what do they consider to be important? What are their dreams? What are their aspirations? What do they want for the school? Uh, and many times you can find some common ground, uh, but you really have to get into a person's thinking to ask them to help you, help them to understand you and mm -hmm. vice versa. It seems like that requires humility. Sometimes, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I wouldn't say it's really humility. I, I think it's, uh, it's reality. You know, I think too many people, when they have a discussion with someone, they're not really listening to the other person. They're trying to formulate how, what they're going to say in return. And as a result... The human condition. Yeah, it's a human condition. <laughs> and as a result, people are not really deeply listening to each other, and they're not inquiring, and they're not probing. And so as a result, we come up with uh, a lot of talk, but little, very little agreement. And communication. And, you know, it's funny, as I'm talking to you, and, and just what you said... Does that require someone to be intentional? In other words, you you would have to practice that, right? Because that's not part of our DNA usually. Yes, yes. Um, I I think a lot of that comes from uh, my work at Queens College when I had my uh, professional certificate work there and my master's work. They put a tremendous emphasis on uh, group relations and. Uh, human relations skills, T groups, and so on. And so I was trained that way to really listen very carefully to people and try to understand from their point of view. Um, and that, that really, really held me uh, in good stead as I went through my career. Okay. All right. So we talked a little bit about a team or, or having a group of people having consensus. Now, what does it mean to have a good team and how would you build one? Um, I, I think you can have a good team. First of all, you have to find the right mix of personalities. Uh, if you if you have the luxury of hand picking your team, you which doesn't happen right. often, it right. doesn't happen often. Mm -hmm. uh, but I was very fortunate in Manhasset in that um, you know when I became principal, I could hire uh, my two assistant principals, and uh, you know I really looked for a blend of personalities, people who were a little bit different than I was, had some skills that I didn't have. And as a result, we, we really formed a very, very nice team. Um, and uh, uh, although there was a little bit of ego, you know, everybody who, who wants to accomplish something, I think, has an ego. Uh, we were all able to sublimate our own egos to what was the best for the school. Hmm. Um, so you need that kind of blend. You need the blend of some skills. Uh, so there were some people who had tremendous social skills, there were some people who had tremendous planning skills, and we were able to utilize our, our multiple skills to be, to be successful. And why is that important? When you come up with um, an idea, it's important that everybody is able to contribute honestly and fully to the accomplishment of that idea, consistent with the vision that you have. So the more people contribute to attaining that vision, um, the more people have psychological ownership of the mm -hmm. ultimate result, and work They're to invested. and work to fine tune it and to carry it on mm -hmm. and to sustain it over time. Okay. Okay. 
Wonderful. I've had, um, and I've heard that, where people, once they're emotionally invested in something and they understand where you're going and they um, can work with you, then it can go further. Yes. Okay. So, um, Mike, tell us about one of your greatest challenges um, that you've experienced and how it has shaped your life. Uh well, one, one of the things that happened when I first became high school principal, uh, I came from the middle school in Manhasset, went, moved into the high school principalship. And the middle school, we were very much student-centered, uh, talking about the development of the young adolescent, uh, focusing on the child. And high school, all of a sudden, it became the curriculum, the coursework, you know, the, the grades, the getting into the college and so on. And at that time, Manhasset had a very stratified curriculum. We had uh, modified, we had uh, modified fundamental, we had regents level, we had modified honors, we had honors, and then we had AP level. And it was not that big of a school. It was, just, mm-hmm. it was very, very stratified. And I started to come to understand that the level of expectation in the lower level classes was really very poor. And I. I had this epiphany one day where I was watching a particular class and the teacher had called upon a student to do a current events article. This was a a modified class. And the student uh, talked about some article from the National Enquirer. And I just said afterwards, this can't be. It Mm. just cannot be in a high school. Mm. So I made up my mind to do away with the modified program and to have all regents and or AP classes. And I got a lot of flack from teachers and parents. Parents saying, you know, you're putting too much pressure on my child, my child will not be able to handle this. And I assured them that they would, we would give them enough support. Um, And the teachers, by saying, well, this is going to change the way we teach because we'll have to teach down now. We won't reach the same level of uh, rigor. And I said, no, you just keep teaching the same way that you've been teaching before, but you are going to have to use some different strategies in order to help some youngsters. I imagine. the. um... And um, I had some doubts, you know. (laughs) But we had an auditorium full of angry people, and I, I went ahead with it. And the following year, and lo and behold, the kids did fine. And in fact, uh, the teachers found new ways of teaching, and actually they came to, around to saying, you know, really affected their teaching and improved it all around. Wow. So then, buoyed by that, I took on the next challenge because we had um, steps in order to get into AP classes. Mm-hmm. And uh, I said, if somebody wants to try an AP class, why can't they? What do we lose? And again, the whole thing came up again. And know. shifting the, the thinking, the really deeply embedded thinking. Was yeah. And um, so I said, well, you know, let's, let's give it a try. And so uh, at that point, they, I guess they were willing to go along with it. And uh, they did, and we had a very large number of kids take on AP classes. We opened up some new AP courses, and as a result, we had uh, a tremendous increase in the number of students enrolled in AP classes Mm -hmm. with 
no diminution of the scores at the end. Actually, we had more kids earning threes or above. And so then we, that year we made the U.S. News and World Report as the nice. seventh, quote, best high school in the country, measuring the number of kids who were in AP courses as compared to the total population of the school. It's, in many ways, it's an erroneous measure, but it made everybody feel good that we actually had accomplished something. So um, you were able to really gain trust. Like the second year was easier, right? Second year was a little bit easier, yeah, because we had gone through it once already. Uh, but there was there was real pushback. There was real. It was tough. Mm -hmm. It was tough there for a while. I just had to stick by my guns and say that we were going to do it, and and it turned out. You know, I knew that the research was behind me. And I knew I had good teachers, really good teachers, and I knew that I could pull it off. They were, I think they were a little hesitant and they doubted themselves, but once they got into it, they did okay. Okay. All right, so tell us one of your greatest successes. I mean, I, that seems like a really amazing <laughs> challenge and success at the same time, um, and how it has shaped you and the lives of those around you. Um, I think from that experience, I learned that if if I come up with something that is fairly well considered and is thoughtfully presented and I can develop some early adopters to support the effort, you can accomplish quite a bit. Um, another another thing we di I did after I retired was um, working with Jerry Dempsey. I um, worked on the Long Island School Leadership Center which was developed by Commissioner Mills at the time throughout the state to uh, try to support aspiring administrators. And that was good work. I really enjoyed that work. And uh, we had a lot of things in place to help those young administrators start to think about what it takes to be a leader. Um, and um, we ran seminars, we had uh, mentoring sessions, uh, we established a listserv for them. We had a lot of a lot of conferences, a lot of workshops, and so it was. We had a, a real cadre of people that were developing their skills. So I felt good about that too. So it was the same kind of thing, just to, trying to be inclusive, trying to be open, trying to be collaborative, listen to people, and and, and try to understand what they needed. When I think of what you're describing, it seems like a, a program that I would have subscribed to because I'm, I'm so cognizant of the fact that we need, as, as leaders, need to take responsibility. Talk to me a little bit more about that program and have you seen it wane or have you seen other programs pop up? Or Unfortunately, you know, it's a state-funded program and uh, even after the money ran out, uh, we were able to sustain it for about two years or so with uh, workshop fees and that kind of thing. But eventually we couldn't sustain it any longer and, and it ended. But while it was running, uh, we put a major effort into um, supporting and encouraging female leaders because at that point they were in a very distinct minority, still in a minority, but in a very distinct minority and minority candidates as well uh, to try and encourage them. And we were pretty successful with that, I thought, um, um, trying to help them to negotiate the hiring process, the preparation process, 
and I think we formed a nice relationship with the local colleges and universities also. So there was a, a, a collaborative spirit of preparing the next generation of leaders. Mm-hmm. Now, what would you tell a new leader who's discouraged about their working, you know, climate or culture? I, and the reason I ask this question, I, I hear it a lot. Um, I hear a lot of um, complaints or disappointments or disillusioned you know, leaders. So what would you tell them? I think you're going to be disillusioned if you focused on the present. You have to focus on the future. So one of the things that I did, um, I wrote a, I guess maybe it was about a 15-page little paper for myself, and it was a day in the life of three students in my high school five years in the future. You know what I what I thought their day would be like if I did the kinds of things I wanted to do, and I and I thought about doing that because I said if I could picture it in terms of the eyes of the students, then it would make the vision clearer to me, and so I could work towards that end. And then I used that document in a lot of different ways. You know, if I got a new PTA president, I'd have her read that. We got a new superintendent. I'd give that to the new superintendent, and I said, you know, check me out. Is this is this where you want to go? Because this is where I want to go. I want to make sure that I'm not doing anything that you don't want. I gave it to the Board of Education. I was very open and transparent about it. Um, I gave it to possible teacher hires, so they should react to it. Is this the kind of school that they wanted to work in? What were their ideas about some of the things that we talked about? Um, and then each year I'd sit down and I'd read it through. I always did it on the same day. It was the afternoon of graduation. I'd sit in my office quietly and read that and I'd say, did I get closer this year? And what do I have to do to modify it, to push it along a little bit? It's a, it's a more concrete vision. Yeah. And how did they respond to that? Board members thought that it was good, but unrealistic. Um, they were concerned about what it would cost. Mm-hmm. And uh, in some cases, I could try to answer some of those questions. In some cases, I didn't know the answer yet. Superintendent, uh, I had a succession of superintendents, and to their credit, um, once they understood it and agreed to it, they were extremely supportive. You know, and I would constantly refer back to it and say, you know, as part of that document, I want to do this, and I need to take this next step now. Can we work that out? And sometimes they'd say, well, this is not the year to do it, but let's, let's plan for it for next year. And they weren't just putting me off. They were really trying to plan strategically. Um, so the document worked well for me. You know, Mike, um, I, I want to go back to something that you mentioned. You developed early adopters to, you know, your vision. Um, tell us a little bit about that. Is that what you used to develop early adopters? Um, I used it sometimes. Um, I think it wasn't hard to develop the first line of early adopters because there are just some people in schools that if you say, okay, we're going to climb Mount Everest, they'll say, when do we leave? You know, okay. they're just that kind of person. They're ready to, to do whatever they need to do. And those are the people that you want to try and find for a pilot program or something like that. Uh, it's the second adopters, the second level, that's really important because the rest of the staff looks at the first adopters and says, oh, well, that's Joe. I mean, Joe's in favor of everything. He's never met an idea that he didn't like. Mm-hmm. But then when the second wave comes on, 
the people who have questions and have some doubts and have some hesitations, then that really starts the momentum going. So oftentimes I would use the document to help explain to the first adopters what it was all about and they understood it quickly and pretty much they were on board. But then I had to reinterpret the document to talk to the people who were the second level people and explain to them why their involvement was really crucial. And I think that's part of what a leader does in, in making coherence out of the vision. It's got to be very real, you know, mm -hmm. it's, got to, it, it's got to be something that really touches people in their everyday life. Mm -hmm. So, you know, for example, one of the things I would do every year is I'd pull out a student schedule at random and I'd follow that student. Um, I'd get on the bus in the morning because I, I thought it was important to start. You would get on the bus? Yeah, with the child, the student. Wow. And then I'd go through the whole schedule. You know, I told the teachers in advance, I wouldn't tell who I was doing, but I told them I'm going to be following a student. I don't know whose class I will be in. You know, I'll just pull out the schedule. But then I kept notes. You know, I, I, you know, how much did I write during the day? How much did I work in a group during the day? How many times was I called upon? How many times was I confused? How many times was I able to do the work? How many times was the work a little bit too easy? Always through the eye of the student. And then I reported back to the faculty about it in general without mentioning individual teachers. And that was really an eye-opener for them. Wow, and for yourself, and I imagine oh, yeah. the student as well, yeah. to have someone that cares enough in that to that level. That's really um, it's. It also wonderful. helps you to think through the structure of schools because it is tough changing your head nine times a day in different classes and having to get up, take three minutes, four minutes in the hallway, get to your next class, sit down again, and then expect to be a listener and not do anything and after a while you you know I wanted to kind of scream a little bit and uh, and it's tiring it's a very tiring day very tiring day and that speaks to you also your your deeply embedded training from Queens College where you want to have someone else's perspective so that's important to do that many leaders describe themselves as lifelong learners what does that mean to you and what are you learning now uh, I, I, I like learning, first I'll say that. You know, mm -hmm. I just, I like anything about learning something new uh, because it, it's, a, it's a body of knowledge, it has a history to it, it has some people who are experts, uh, and all that I find to be very attractive. Um, I get excited about an idea. The one I'm excited about now is the idea of professional capital. Uh, Michael Fawn and, and uh, Andy Hardgreaves book which makes a lot of sense to me um, what they say is that in schools we've been spending a lot of time developing human capital um, if if we can work on each teacher and make each teacher better that's the job of the school leader and that will help but you can only go so far with that the real progress takes place when you develop social capital, which is the second ingredient of professional capital, so that there's people working together 
with a shared interest. And then the third piece that they talk about is what's called decisional capital, which is instead of a teacher in their classroom making a decision about what they think is best, they make a decision in a classroom about what we think is best and what the school believes in. So it gives an illustration in the book which I think is illustrative where a new teacher comes into a school setting up his classroom before the first day of school and a group of teachers come by welcome to our school you know we're here to help you anything we can do for you we'll I'm sure you'll have a good time here oh thank you very much says the new teacher and off everybody goes to do their work so a little, uh, about a week later the school year started and the teachers come by and they say you know one of the things that we do here is we really believe in a word wall because that's just a great way and just everybody does it so you know if you need any help let us know We'll be happy to help you set it up. And teach yourself, oh, thanks a lot. You know, I'm really getting my feet on the ground here and getting started and so on, but I, I, I certainly will remember that. And about another two weeks goes by and the same teachers come by again and they say, we're here to help you set up your word wall. And I just think that is, is, a, is a funny little story. And some people might say, well, that's very intrusive. You know, why don't those people mind their own business? But that's the kind of school you want. It's this kind of school where the teachers drive the improvement because they have certain professional standards about what they're doing. Mm -hmm. So what Fullen and Hardgreaves say is that professional capital is the combination of human capital, social capital, and decisional capital, all of which enhances the operation. Well. That was my next question. What are you reading that we should read or our listeners should read? Is there another book as well? or? Um, well, Professional Capital is the one I'm, I'm reading now. Okay. Um, I, I have read it and I'm developing some workshops around it, which seem to be pretty well received so far. But another book I'm reading, um, which is not about education, but I think it's just fascinating, is uh, it's called Unfair. And it's basically about the criminal justice system and how human frailties produce an unjust system. And I see many, many analogies to our public education system in terms of people's perceptions of different kids' abilities and how those perceptions, although they may be held very innocently, are really very hurtful to kids, starting at a very early age. So I'm I'm drawing parallels between those two. And and I imagine that the teachers or whoever is holding these perceptions isn't aware yes. of Not you aware know the all. impact that they have. Not aware at all. And and certainly if it's pointed out to them, they would one deny it, and two say no no I would never do that. I I have the best interests of the kids at heart, and they really do but they just don't understand how little decisions that they're making are making uh, a big difference. Small point. Mm -hmm. uh, I was talking to a, uh, a, a parent and she told me that in her son's class there are two Josephs. And so the teacher calls one child the scholar Joseph and the other one the athlete Joseph. 
And I'm sure she means no harm by that at all, and she mm -hmm. probably thinks that's cute. But what she's doing is she's creating stereotypes for the kids right. that are right. not going to be good right. in the long run. Now, I understand, and correct me if I'm wrong, you coach as well? Yes. So how would you coach someone, a, a teacher like that, in that particular situation? Someone who, if you tell them, they're, they would deny it, and they don't, they're not open to input. How would you do that? Well, I think one of the things you do when you coach is you try and collect evidence that is factually based, and you try to hold up a mirror to the person and help them to realize that what they may be doing or saying is actually having an effect different from what they have in mind. Um, so I would point out that, you know, while you're doing that, I noticed that athlete Joseph cringed a couple of times when you called him that, and he didn't respond afterwards. Mm. And I was wondering what you thought about that, because the teacher has to react to that kind of situation. Um, but sometimes teachers don't see. That's no fault. Mm -hmm. It's just that they're too close to the action to be able to see what, they're re what the ramifications are of something that they do or say. Right, right. And that's a blind spot we have, right? I think it's not just teachers. I think all of us <laughs> yeah. have that blind spot, and we need, that's why we need coaches. Yeah, I'm doing a little bit of uh, informal research in, in some of my workshops now where I ask people, to recall something that was said to them during their student years that was either extremely positive and may have changed their life or on the other hand extremely negative and I asked them to hold it in their mind and remember that and um, then we kind of analyze it without talking about the specific things mm -hmm. and it's it's fascinating because the negative things are so deeply held the person can remember exactly what happened, where it was, what the teacher's exact words were, and so on and so forth. And then when I asked them, both the positive and the negative, do you think the teacher planned what they were going to say? In the positive instance, they said, absolutely. She sat me down, and she looked for the right opportunity, and she told me what she had to tell me. The negative thing, not so much. Hmm. It was on the spur of the moment, and yet it gets remembered 30, 40 years in the future. Um, so, Mike, tell us what you do on a daily basis to set your mind for the responsibilities that you have. Now, I know that you're retired, but, but you have a lot of projects. Well, the School Leadership 2.0 mm -hmm. uh, takes some time to uh, maintain, feed, uh, build, so we have, we have 12,000 members now, and we mail out a, an email bulletin four times a week to um, about 95,000 educators worldwide. So um, I usually start out the day after breakfast uh, working on the site. That usually takes me about three, three and a half hours every day. And a lot of that is reading articles, reading research, uh, reading people's blogs, and so on, and trying to find those things that I think will be interesting to the readers, the members. And I post those. And then I also have to maintain the site in terms of new people signing on, uh, 
people maybe leaving. Uh, but in the course of doing that, I'm in communication with people all over the world. Uh, so that's a very rich kind of experience because mm -hmm. people have very, very different school systems. Um, and so it's, it's just wonderful to, to learn about how they look at schooling in different places. So that's a, that's a real learning experience. I'm, I'm doing a lot of reading, I'm doing a lot of analysis, I'm doing a lot of talking to people. Um, it's given me a great perspective. And then um, usually I'm out off then to do a workshop or do some consulting somewhere. Uh, and that's fun. Because you go into a situation and it may be a one-shot kind of thing where you have to establish a relationship uh, with the folks immediately. Mm -hmm. Or maybe I'm working on a long-term project in a district where I have established a relationship and I'm trying to build that relationship and carry them on to the next level. Um, so the, that's all it's all to the good. They're busy days. Yeah. So, you know, when I first um, came across School Leadership 2.0, I thought it was a really smart idea. Thank you. How did you come up with that? What t Tell us the process of and how, how this was born. Well, actually, it started in the... Um, um, Leadership Center, Long Island School Leadership Center. When we were working with the young administrators, we I created a uh, a listserv, simply to get the information out to the administrators, and uh, that grew very rapidly because it, it turned out to be a great way of communicating. So we had uh, a different listserv for different types of department chair people, high school principal, middle school principal, uh, and on and on for every title university folks and so on so they could talk to one another um, and that grew very very rapidly and it was run from the Nassabosi server and eventually when the leadership center ran out of funding uh, Nassabosi's kind of agreed to take over the whole listserv system but I realized in that what that was was really a mailbox it was just putting things in people's mailboxes it wasn't giving people the opportunity of interacting with each other uh, so Bill Brennan and I who's Bill is the director of technology in Farmingdale schools and is scary smart and we decided we'd create something uh, that would allow people to talk together share videos blog uh, forum calendar bookstore, on and on, all sorts of different features, and, it, and it's, it's grew, grown very rapidly. It's kind of like a Facebook for school leaders. Some people have said that, yeah. Very smart idea. So, you know, many educational leaders put in really long hours. What advice would you give them about maintaining balance in their lives? Um, I think you have to plan. Um, but important thing in your planning is that the first thing you should plan is time for yourself and that's important and many many don't do that yep. you just you have to do that and uh, you have to build in that time you know so when my wife comes home from work I'm done I'm finished there's nothing that interferes with that you know I don't take phone calls I don't work on the site I don't plan my workshops that's all done before she comes home then we she comes home, then we're together. And uh, I have two daughters who live not too far away and four grandchildren, and that takes precedence. You know, mm. Babysitting comes first. So um, I like to try and do that kind of thing. But you have to plan that. You really have to plan it. Because if you don't, your life will just uh, consume you. Yeah. 
So is there any technology or app that you use to help you schedule or that you advise other people that can be useful? Um, well, I have an iPhone. Mm -hmm. And so most of the business I do is on my iPhone. And uh, you'd be surprised how much business I can get done in the car because I have hands-free dialing. You know, I know that maybe that's not a good idea for my attention on the road, but it sure does help me get a lot a lot accomplished. I plan specific times where I, I do my email. It pinches at you if you don't, you know, maybe right. I should check my email now, maybe I should. No, just wait, it'll still be there. Do it when you're ready to do that and you have all the different tools that you need in order to do your email. So Google Docs is great. School Leadership 2.0 is run on a Ning platform and they're very good with that. That's a very comprehensive platform. And we use Constant Contact to send out our email blasts. Okay, so we're, we've come to our last question. If you were to go back in time, Mike, and what advice would you give the younger you about leadership? I think I would have told myself to be a little broader in my thinking. I think when I was younger, I saw choices as maybe one of two alternatives. Um, if, if one of the two happened to be a good one, then that's the one I picked. But I'm not sure that if I was a little bit more broader in my thinking, I might have seen three, four, five alternatives. Some of those might have been even better. I, I think as, I, as I've gotten older, I've kind of understood that one of the worst things you can do is to limit your, your view of the world and possible solutions to a problem. Um, the other thing I, I think I've come to understand as I get older is that I have a better understanding of, of the, the actions that I take and the ramifications that those actions have. I'd say to myself probably be more deliberate, more thoughtful, a little bit more analytical. Um, but that sounds like an old person, doesn't it? <laughs> Sounds like someone giving advice to a younger person, <laughs> which is what we need. I appreciate that. So, Michael, um, we've come to the end of the interview. I really want to thank you so much for adding value, not just to me, but to our listeners. Well, thank you. This was a wonderful experience. It was and fun. This is great just to kind of reflect back on what you do. It was fun. It was thank fun. Thank you very much. Okay. Hello, leaders. Don't forget to go to www.masterleadership.org to get show notes for this episode and to find out how to get a free coaching session. Until next time. Bye. Bye.